Fora TV podcasts are brought to you by the Wellness Channel, sponsored by Pfizer at Fora.tv slash wellness. I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Alexander Rose, the director of the Long Now Foundation. Um, I'm going to give you uh, just a quick overview of an event that's coming up. Uh, I think you all got little flyers in your hands, but we have some new additions to it. It's called the Mechanicrawl. And this, uh, the idea for this event came to me as I started r- taking the ferry into San Francisco and riding my bike this way. And I realized that San Francisco has some of the most amazing mechanical treasures that nobody ever gets to see. And put together a, a little walk here. Um, we're partnering up with the Exploratorium, as well as uh, the, the Maritime Parks Association, the Jeremiah O'Brien, and uh, the USS Pompanito, and the Musée Mécanique. Um, it's all walkable, bikeable. We're going to have secure bike uh, parking as well as um, uh, car parking. And the Musée Mechanique, if you haven't been there, it's down at Fisherman's Wharf. It has, uh, among other things, uh, Dan Zielinski, who's the second generation owner and proprietor there, um, has been collecting Mechanica pretty much of the turn of the century on forward, including all the way up into the 80s video games. Um, and that uh, steam-powered motorcycle, which is one of the most amazing examples. I'm going to see if I can convince them to start it up for the event. Um, the Pompanito, which is actually the thing that started this up, is it has on board the most complex mechanical computer ever built. Um, and it's the targeting control computer for the torpedo system. And they have renovated it to full working order. And nobody knows about it. It's up in the conning tower. Nobody ever gets to see it. And these wonderful World War II geeks have made it completely work, and nobody ever gets to appreciate it. So they're going to be giving demos of that all day. The, um, up on the Hyde Street Pier, they're going to have a Hicks diesel engine, as well as the uh, old lighthouse Fresnel lens assembly running. And the... Um, Jeremiah O'Brien, if you haven't seen it, has a three-story tall steam engine that runs. And this is kind of the penultimate steampunk item that very few San Franciscans ever get to see go. They're going to have it running all day. And the Exploratorium is going to have special exhibits and docents, including explanations, um, I'm hoping, of the wave organ. If you haven't been out there, it's way out on the point. And that's about it. Um, if you're a Long Now member, you get, uh, free, you get in free. If, actually, if you're a member of any of these organizations, you get in free, plus one. And we're also looking for more partners. I'm trying to get a contact with the uh, San Francisco Fire Department, which has this amazing pump station over here, as well as their fireboats. If anybody knows any firemen, let me know. And uh, you can pick up your tickets um, or order them through our website at mechanicrawl.org or .com. We also have tickets out front, and um, we also have flyers, which you can give out to your friends. I'm Kevin Kelly of the Long Now Foundation. Welcome to the latest monthly installment of the seminar on long-term thinking. Just to note that the next one will be happening in June, Paul Ehrlich, talking about long-term human evolution. 
Uh, normally Stuart's up here, but he's uh, nursing a kidney stone, so we're going to swap positions, and um, I'll be asking uh, Iqbal the questions, and um, everyone can send their questions down to, to Stuart. So uh, today's guest is Iqbal Kadir, who um, is coming from the East Coast, and uh, one of the things that we kind of look at in the long now is long-term trajectories, and one of those long-term ones is the arc of development, economic development. And Kadir and uh, Iqbal has a very interesting uh, perspective on this, in part because he's gone through uh, the same arc. He grew up in Bangladesh, still one of the poorest undeveloped countries in the world, and now today he works in uh, walks. He, he began in Bangladesh actually having to walk five or ten miles to get medicines for his family. Now he, he walks in the corridors of Harvard, and uh, he's currently the head of a new center called the um, uh, Legantum Center for Development at MIT. And he's here to talk about something that he discovered, uh, I would say, almost 15 years ago now, which is that the cell phone was a weapon against poverty. And at that time, of course, nobody was paying attention to cell phones because they were just cell phones. But now it's very clear that cell phones are probably more than cell phones. They are probably going to be the first ubiquitous technology of communication on the planet. They're kind of the Esperanto of technology. And so we have this convergence of something that will probably be the center of our digital lives and, uh, and, a, and a weapon for poverty. And this, of course, is all just the beginning because of other technologies. And so I'd like you to welcome Iqbal, who can explain the details and the further aspects of his vision of how we can use technology to empower the poorest. Iqbal? Thank you very much. You don't need that. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. Uh, good evening. Uh, it's great to be here. Um, beautiful day, beautiful weather. Um, thanks to the Long Now Foundation, Stuart Brand, to, to invite me here. And um, delighted to be here. And thanks, Kevin, for the kind introduction. I, um, I think before I... Um, but let me also mention that it's really a um, special privilege to be at the Long Now Foundation because... I um, base my thinking on not necessarily, I don't know how good I would be at long-term thinking, but I base my solutions on long-term observations uh, backward in the past. And so there are reflections on history and how, uh, what that means for our problems today. So let me first take you for a minute to Bangladesh, where, um, where I'm from and where um, one of my projects um, really has uh, taken hold. With scenes like this, it's hard to believe there's an economic revolution taking place in Bangladesh. But if you look closely enough, it's happening. Hello, alaikum. With loans for people to buy cell phones, entire villages are being brought into the information age. I want people throughout the world to know this story. 
Well, to start the story, I came to America 32 years ago uh, to go to college from Bangladesh. And one of the first thing I learned, I mean, while I was doing research about what colleges to go to and when I got here, that um, not all important colleges are in Washington, D.C. And, uh, and similarly, uh, because I came from Bangladesh, which had all the important schools, were in Dhaka, its capital. And similarly, you know, all import other kinds of modern infrastructure like telephones or electricity, most things were in one capital city, and others just had little sprinkles of things like in small towns. But by and large, the concentration or centralization of the country's economic activities was very palpable in, in a poor country, and big contrast with that with the United States when I got here. And of course, that has led me to think about, is there a connection between centralization and stagnation and dispersion or decentralization and progress? And the more I think about it, I find more and more connections. And so that's the underlying theme of my work. And uh, <clears throat> to give you, uh, and of course, you will see that in most countries, Bangladesh is not unique at all. In most uh, poor countries, that is indeed the situation, that you have a one big mega city and large rural areas that are neglected from a modern infrastructure point of view. But one extreme example, just to make the point, is you can see the two Korean, um, you know, two Koreas. And the North Korea, South Korea. South Korea, you can, at least this is just a picture of electrical, you know, electricity in the evening. And North Korea does have electricity. There's one town. Pyongyang has electricity, but it's just there. And South Korea, these this kind of activities are all over, the, all over the country. So this is an extreme example, but in most poor countries you will see, again, um, just to illustrate, that most um, quote-unquote economic activities are in, are in the hands of few, are in one central um, city, and the rest of the country is quite neglected. Now, the reason I think about it, of course, is because Bangladesh is a poor country, and I came and, from one of the poorest countries to one of the richest countries. And, uh, but at the same time, Bangladesh, frankly, wasn't always poor. Talking about long-term observation, about 250 years ago, this is a book uh, written um, by an American writer and talking about how Bangladesh was actually quite well off 250 years ago. So um, in not just in agriculture, but also in manufacturing in terms of fabrics. Now, if that's the case, I like to think why countries go down and why, how they go up. And is there a connection between centralization and decentralization? And if there is, we can think about how to decentralize them. And, uh, <clears throat> but, you know, one, many people will tell you that, oh, it depends on the culture, on their leadership, etc. So one of the, the countries, of course, like England, which was the crucible of um, you know, modern democracy and modern capitalism, it's not true that they had great leadership over the last thousand years. Let me just um, give me a minute to read this. Over the last thousand years or so, many kings and queens of England have played their part in betrayals, regicides, plots, treason, atrocities, and revolts. There have been five pretenders to the crown, two of them impostors, 
Four kings have been forcibly deposed. All were subsequently murdered. One of them was publicly executed. And actually, it goes on and on. The, the third world countries of today, we know, have massive problems in their governance. But frankly, I, I, I don't think they are much worse off than this. But so uh, the question is, what is it that's preventing them? What is it that led, despite this kind of leadership in England, things, uh, things changed? How did it become an exemplary country in terms of progress? And, uh, but then let's go back to the contemporary situation of the method we have for economic development in poor countries. The rich countries send aid to poor countries, and by and large, this hasn't worked. And there are lots of evidences of that, including the worldwide poverty in poor countries. The one evidence I brought here is a book called The Elusive Quest for Growth. This book is written by someone who worked in the World Bank for about 20 years. And he finds the growth, economic growth, that he finds that elusive, means it's hard, I mean, I mean he's mystified. How come it's not happening? And the question is, why has it failed? And um, to me, frankly, it's not that elusive. It's quite clear. So I want to throw that perspective to you and see if it makes sense. Um, one way to look at it is look at the countries that have developed from, let's say, over the last 1,000 years. I really feel good about bringing this up because this is the foundation of long-term thinking. Um, I mean, at least we can base our observation on, on the long-term observations. Now, uh, so in, in medieval uh, England, for instance, or in Europe, people, the economy started to perk up because individuals were getting empowered through new innovations, technologies. This is a, just a picture of a wheeled plow that new metals allowed that were able, a, that were able to plow better in uh, more um, clay soil that Northern Europe had. Before that, Southern Europe was better um, in agriculture than Northern Europe. So this was, but there are many other things, like eyeglasses, windmills, water mills, all sorts of things that empowered citizens. And what that did is, and this book will confirm that, the citizens got empowered from below, and they were able to demand better checks and, checks and balances from the authorities. So there was a devolution of authority, and there was an evolution of empowerment through various technological innovations. And so there was a better bargaining, and that's how we increasingly developed a, you know, better checks and balances, democracies and capitalism, etc. cetera, um, you know, emerged from below. And so if you look at that, and again, we can go into the details um, through questions or other, uh, on other occasions. But by and large, this, this picture is true, I mean, you know, discussed in many books, including this one by David Landis, who um, taught at Harvard for 40 years. Now, if you, believe, if you see that, then you can see what has happened to giving aid to poor countries, governments, that has done just the opposite. It has empowered authorities, and consequently marginalized citizens. So if citizens were ever to come to demand checks and balances from their authorities, they were more and more ignored because the authorities had other resources. So if you, uh, 
But I can summarize this, actually, what President Woodrow Wilson said. The history of liberty is the history of limitation of government's power, not the increase of it. The American system is based on checks and balances, and including limitations on the federal government. But yet, the aid the rich countries send to poor countries actually empower the, the, their, their authorities. And that's why you see a major gap between citizens and authorities. On one way or another, it centralizes power, where decentralization is the key. Now, let me show, give you one specific example. The English parliament started out in the 13th century as a tax legitimizing device. The king wanted to collect taxes, and by that, by that time, actually for another, you know, weaknesses of the government, of the king, and empowerment of citizens, property rights have come to be established. And under those circumstances, when the king started to collect, you know, ask for taxes, people said, or nobles, or whoever said, oh, you cannot take, our, take taxes from us because we have property rights. That's like seizing my property. So if you want to tax us, you have to get our consent. Now, if you want consent in a non-democratic country, how do you do that? Well, one thing that the king devised, we, he called a workshop, called it the parliament, and said, you know, we'll, we'll consult you, we'll consult with you. Some key people from the country came to this workshop, and he said, I'm going to tax this way. What do you think? And they would say, go ahead. And then it would become somewhat legitimate, and the king was able to collect taxes. Now, as the economy is, is you know, because of these empowerments I talked about, people became more productive, people's wages go, went up, or they had other things to, you know, more activities to pursue. So then it was also more expensive for the king to hire bureaucrats or soldiers, whatever. So as a result, the king needed more money. So when he needed more money, he had to come to the parliament and ask for a consent. Slowly, the consultation became a consent-giving mechanism. And over time, the parliament, and each time the king came to the parliament, the parliament demanded a deal. They all free that port, reduce that tariff, etc. And that's what gave rise to new liberties that the people of England did not have. And the king was constantly making compromises because he needed money. So the point is, the democracy emerged through the economic clout of citizens. Plain and simple. And actually, many, many deals were blunt deals, economic money deals between the parliament and the king. So the question is, what, what helped England was the king's shortage of money, not its adequacy. What if there were foreign aid to the king? What would happen to England in terms of democracy and capitalism. The compromises that gave rise to those things would not have been made, but at least slowed down. So when, you, when we see aid to governments in poor countries, you can imagine what damages they can be doing. So governments become responsive to citizens when citizens make economic contributions to governments. As simple as that. And, but let me show you one more thing from this book. The subtitle of this book says, Economies, Adventures, and Misadventures in the Tropics. Now, misadventure is a little too much. Let's just think about adventures. Can you imagine writing a book that says elusive, let's say a doctor writing a book saying, elusive quest for help. 
that you know, he's having a quest for health and cannot find healthy you know, solutions to his patients. How would you be able to sell that book? And imagine the doctor saying, doctor's adventures in human health. Forget about misadventures. Well, how come we, the doctors cannot get away with such a book? But these, these economies do. There's an inter important reason I'm bringing this up, not to make fun of economies. The, the reason is the nature of poverty is different from healthcare in this country. If the doctors are having adventures, the patients can speak up. But in the case of poverty, we can set, you know, e economies loose, but the patients cannot speak up. As a result, their adventures go on, and these countries stagnate. And they're empowered by aid, and then they come and give their, you know, give their theories, and it doesn't, it, they don't work. And this is why it's important to make long-term observations in our past and see what prog what, how we achieve progress and how we stagnated. So the story of progress is the story of dispersion of power. And that's really my theme, in, 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 and that's how I will descri I describe to you. So in the early 90s, I started, a, a, you know, I had a budding investment banking career. And that's where I discovered a decentralizing force, namely Moore's Law. Gordon Moore, one of the founders of Intel, observed in the mid-60s that every 18 months, microchips, the brain of the computers, go down in price in, uh, by 50%, right here in the Bay Area. Now, he, that means every three years, namely twice the time of 18 months, every three years, prices fall to, by 75% to one quarter, which means every six years, it becomes one sixteenth. So every um, 12 years, it becomes one over 256. And you add another three years, let's say every 15 years, it becomes 1,000, a little bit more than 1,000, to $1. So the microchips were actually marching to the poor people. And it's also potentially a decentralizing force. Okay. But I, I, I didn't know how to make use of computers in countries where there is a lot of illiteracy. And so therefore, people couldn't quite use um, computers, even if they become, they're becoming cheaper. And, um, you know, perhaps they could be utilized, but I didn't know how to use it because computers are mostly made, made for literate people. Now, one day um, in 1993, I had, um, um, you know, my, our, I, I was working with three or four people and our computer network was, connect, was connected. Uh, and we were more productive. We didn't have to exchange floppy disks. Maybe many of you don't know floppy disks. It used to exist. And um, we um, and we could update each other more frequently, but one time it broke down, and I this is not my picture. This is what we found in the computer, and uh, but one time uh, when uh, the computer broke and the network broke down, I was waiting for someone to come and fix it, and um, during that time I remembered another day in 1971 when Bangladesh was undergoing a war. This is the, Bangladesh used to be called East Pakistan before 1971. And the, you know, the two, two wings of old Pakistan was separating and so there was a civil war 
there was a lot of violence in the urban areas while I lived in a city, but I moved to a rural area with my parents uh, and my family uh, where there was a quiet place because there was really no modern infrastructure to even bring the, uh, you know, the, the skirmishes into this village. And uh, one time my mother asked me to get some medicine for a younger sibling some 10 kilometers away. So I walked all morning to get there. And uh, when I got there, the medicine man wasn't there. So I walked all afternoon back. And so I remember this unproductive day while I was having another one in New York. And I suddenly I put these two unproductive days side by side. And I realized that connectivity is productivity. And, um, so, and if it's true for a modern office and also for any place, for an underdeveloped village. Because, um, you know, I could have gotten more done if I could tell. I mean, I was just a kid, 13 years old, but uh, perhaps a productive person would have, been, would have done something. If I was a fisherman, I could have fished that day, then wasting the day in just connecting with somebody. Okay. And, uh, of course, you can think about how many, you know, let's say if the country has, today the country has 150 million people, if you waste one day per month, you'll see millions of man months wasted um, in, a, in not having some kind of connectivity. So I started looking, where did Bangladesh lie in telecommunications? Of course, there was a centralization problem. There were one phone for every 500 people, and all, most of those phones, 70% of them, were in one city. Another city had 20%, and the remaining 10% in just... Uh, um, in other smaller towns. So again, it's a concentration of the uh, available facilities. <clears throat> so I started looking, what can be done about this? And indeed, I felt connectivity is productivity, but is it so? Have other thinkers, doers felt that way? So I couldn't quite find anything, but I did find this graph, uh, which is produced by International Telecommunications Union, uh, which is the United Nations of Telecommunications. And in the vertical axis, it says contribution to one new phone to the country, the GDP, to the GDP of the country. And on the horizontal axis, you place your country. So the highest um, GDP country that can be accommodated to this chart is $20,000 per, per capita. But the United States will be way out of, outside that. But if you have a poor country, let's say um, $300 per capita GDP, GDP is the gross domestic product and for an annualized basis. Now, if you have a $300 GDP country, then you can see the impact is five, $6,000. Okay. So it's a tremendous impact. The poorer the country you have, bigger the impact, which was quite interesting. And I didn't know exactly how, but perhaps because there is a greater amount of inefficiencies a telephone can remove. But also, I... And of course, this does not capture the Moore's law I was talking about, because it doesn't talk about the cost of bringing a telephone. So I asked, how much does it cost to bring in a telephone, let's say, in Bangladesh? And despite um, all our inefficiencies, because of, we had a state-led, state-owned company providing telephones, it cost $2,000 per phone. So if you, um, but if it's $2,000, and it lasts for, let's say, 10 years, then uh, that means this, um, according to this curve, the country would be, be would be making fifty thousand dollars, five thousand dollars times ten. But if it costs two thousand dollars, then it's a huge uh, benefit for two thousand dollar investment, fifty thousand dollar 
output. But then, if the Moore's loss is right, then this cost of, instead of $2,000, goes to $200, or something even smaller. Then the impact is even more dramatic, and it might be possible for me to bring about telephones uh, in some you know, easier way than it has been in the past. But let me just run by another thinking I, I underwent. One, the Adam Smith said, specialization leads productivity. But how would you specialize? Namely, let's say if I'm a fisherman and farmer. Kevin is a fisherman and a farmer. How are we going to suddenly become, I'm going becoming fisherman and Kevin is becoming a farmer? Not until we can connect with each other. Because we must be first be able to depend on each other, to be able to rely on his goods and exchange with my goods. And in order to rely on each other, we must depend, we must connect with each other. So if we are neighbors, of course, we can sort of depend on each other because we connect regularly. But then we cannot, the, the economy is very, very small, just on small neighborhoods. So if you must expand your economy and specialize more, you must connect in some other ways, through a highway, through a river, and perhaps through a telephone line. But the key point is that you must connect first in order to depend on each other and then be able to specialize and advance the economy in general. So I was pretty sure that this could be done, and this, this makes sense. But uh, the more um, these bureaucrats and other important experts I met, more they were trying to um, deconvince me that that's, you know, it's not right thinking. So I want to go through a little bit about what I went through. So for example, nonsense number one, poor countries are under-resourced. I don't think so. For example, time. Time is a very important resource. The, I was wasting time. That's an impo important resource the country is wasting. Okay? So while everybody tells me the poor countries are poor because they don't have resources, the interesting tragedy is the poor countries are poor because whatever resources they do have, they waste them. Time is one of them. Another is people. So for instance, if I'm a person in Bangladesh, in order to do anything productive, I need to connect with other people. So if I'm trying to connect with them, otherwise I cannot use my fellow countrymen. So if I want to connect with them, that's another important resource. And there are many, many others that are wasted. So the poor countries are extremely wasteful. Nonsense number two. Poor people lack buying power. Why? Why do we worry about that? If this is a productivity tool, then it will make me produce more and able to pay for it. So for instance, in the United States, we buy a car putting a little bit of money down. Then we take a loan. The car, um, you know, I take a car home. The car takes me to work. The work pays me a salary. And then the salary allows me to pay for the car. So the car actually pays for itself. It's because it's a productivity tool. So if a telephone is a productivity tool, we shouldn't worry so much about its, its, um, the existing buying power. We should worry about whether they are going to make us productive or not. Okay. Nonsense number three. You need to start with money to make money. Okay, fine. You have to put a little money down to get a phone, to get a, um, let's say, a car. But again, if we have a shared access, then that can be broken down into you know, smaller pieces. In fact, telephones started out in the United States as a community-based device. Nonsense number four, for example. Inability to meet primary needs. People were telling me there's shortage of food, there's a shortage of uh, clothing, shelter, medicine, whatnot. 
But again, these are like the top-down big brother thinking. Why do we worry about that? Income is the ability. If people ha have better income, they can use their brains. By the way, these brains are another important resource that are wasted, okay? Because they're not utilized. Somebody is trying to make a decision for everybody, okay? And so that, too, is a resource that needs to be put to use. And that brain gets activated when it produces more, when its income is higher to the owner of the brain. So again, income is the ability. It's not the inability of having other needs, because they can buy food, medicine, or whatever. But the, the real problem, of course, these things we can sort out in our heads. But the real problem, there was some, must be some other real problem on the ground. And I felt centralization was the problem. Namely, because there's one city which had all the infrastructure, electricity, and banks, and whatnot, if you try to take the phones, even if Moore's Law and others says that it'll become cheaper and cheaper and you can take it all over the country, there's very little other infrastructure to take it to there. That's the real problem. Centralization stood in my way. So, for instance, if you want credit checks, the ecology is not there. And there's no service to, to tell me who would be a good subscriber or who would not be. There are a few banks through which customers could pay bills. The contact points, these things are lacking. And of course, it was obvious to me that you need one thing to get another new thing on the ground. So for instance, the internet was booming in this country at that time, early 90s. And that's because people already had computers, they had modems, they had telephone lines, they had other things on which a new idea can spread quickly. But that's the real problem in a poor country where the other infrastructures have not been built, partly because of the centralization problem we talk, I'm talking about. Now, let's say then I noticed these microcredit organizations. There, are, there were several. One was, is Grameen Bank, which has recently received a Nobel um, Peace Prize. And there was another organization called BRAC. There's another one, ASA. But anyway, I started focusing on Grameen Bank. And basically, these banks give loans to poor people and they created branches all over the rural areas. And so Grameen Bank had about 1,000 branches. This is talking about in 1993. And each, you know, the Grameen Bank had two to three million borrowers at the time, and excellent repayment records. And most of their borrowers were women. And that's because over time, they found that women manage money better. And uh, so I started looking at, um, and I first went to them and said, you know, perhaps you could be my, um, a client, okay? Because they need to manage these branches. But they were not that interested because, after all, this was a country without telephones, so they evolved in a decentralized way. The branches managed their accounts, and every week or so they reported to the headquarters. So if you go into the headquarters, it's a relatively quiet place, even though they had two to three million borrowers at the time. So I started focusing, what is it that they do? What's the core activity? And this is really the simple model, that a woman borrows money from the bank, then she buys, um, you know, let's say a cow. The cow gives milk. She sells the milk to her uh, fellow you know, villagers and pays off the loan. And after a year or so, she owns the cow. Of course, there were duck loans, chicken loans, goat loans, but the cow was most typical. And then I realized that, you know, a cell phone could be a cow too because somebody could borrow um, some money. If there is a network out there, then um, 
the, uh, she could, um, you know, that would be a phone for the whole community, basically, and it's a business for her. So I went back uh, to the uh, Grameen Bank leadership and told them that, you know, I think the cell phone can be a car. And they said, um, yeah, that's a little logical, but a um, little crazy, but nonetheless somewhat logical. So they, said, they basically encouraged me to pursue this idea, but it was clear that they couldn't fund um, the development of the idea um, any further, but they wanted to cooperate with me if I could. So I came back to America, and I uh, convinced an angel um, funder in New York, his name is Joshua Mailman, to give me $125,000, and we created a company called Gonophone. And Gonophone in Bengali, it's an American company, but in, in Bengali it means phones for the masses. This was a little uh, daring in those days, because um, one or two percent Americans had cell phones in 93, 94, this is, by this time it's 94. But I um, believed in the Moore's Law, and I felt it's going to become cheaper and cheaper because the phones were become digitized. Um, so, but then again, this is a long uh, story, and uh, of course, I had many, many rejections. From, so that money allowed me to fly around the world and try to convince some telephone company to get into this business. And I felt once the telephone company comes into the picture, then Grameen Bank would also commit because they were encouraging me, but not quite uh, committed. So again, I will spare you the details, but uh, I had um, maybe a million miles in, in frequent flyers programs. I um, had many sleepless nights and minor loss of hair. But I did eventually convince a, the Norwegian telephone company to uh, join this consortium. So this is called Telenor. Telenor basic, the basic structure is that Telenor provided the know-how and Grameen family would provide the distribution network in the rural areas. And then we, of course, applied for a license from the government, and Grameen's good reputation and Telenor's good reputation uh, allowed us to obtain a license from the government. And uh, so that was, by that time, it was 1996, so it's about four years when I, since I started, at the end of 96. So early 97, we started providing a service. And uh, Gonophone had American shareholders from here and was also a shareholder. In, in 2004, we sold out those shares to Telenor and, and Grameen. And uh, then, um, but basically we started with equity and um, started building the network. And we also obtained a loan from uh, the uh, private sector arm of the World Bank, uh, International Finance Corporation. But total initial funding was about $120 million. And uh, so this is a, a coverage of Bangladesh as of 2005. You can see its uh, telecommunications has become decentralized all over the country. And by now, by the way, from internally generated cash, the company has invested um, $2 billion. So it has pretty good network all over Bangladesh, a country that often does not have electricity in many places. Okay. But it has a pretty good um, telecommunication coverage um, in a mobile, modern, totally digital uh, GSM system. And, uh, but the, the cow model I talked about, there are 250,000 entrepreneurs who retail telephone services in the um, villages in Bangladesh. And they make a living, and they're also being upgraded because the, tele the phones are spreading so much that eventually it's eating into their business. Okay. And people are better connected, and they are more productive. We can always talk about these special cases. Um, now, Grameen Phone, basic financial is that they have about 25 million subscribers right now. 
And the country has 40 million telephones today. And that's more than 100 times the number of phones that, had, uh, that we had in the country in uh, 1994. And the com- in 2006, the net profit of the company was $250 million, and it contributed $300 million to the government in taxes, customs duties, fees, license fees, etc. But here are the lessons from Grameen Phone. That basically, you will hear the governments need to provide economically viable services. Well, private companies can provide them. Governments must subsidize companies to serve the poor. Or sometimes they say, oh, private companies don't do it. Government must do it. But company, not only companies can do it, like I, Gamin Phone demonstrates, but also companies can pay taxes to the government. Poor countries need aid. Businesses raise resources far more than aid. I can show you through that curve uh, from the ITU that the GDP that has gone up in, due to the tele- telephones distributed throughout the country is much larger than the aid received. And also, the economic improvement is, is dispersed, not concentrated in the hands of the few. Rich countries either help or exploit poor countries. Well. Both rich and poor countries can gain by making uh, people more productive. In fact, it's not just Norwegian telephone company or Norway helping Bangladesh. Bangladesh is helping Norway. And Bangladesh is a country of 150 million people. Norway is a 4.5 million people country. We should be helping them. (laughs) Poor people are recipients. Well, they are a resource. In fact, The other wisdom I hear, that services cost too much for the poor. Their involvement reduces the cost. The uneducated poor cannot do much. Well, they're eager learners because the learning makes a difference in their lives. Then you learn quickly. I don't learn a lot of things uh, because I don't have to. Like, for example, if you just use Microsoft Word, you don't necessarily learn all the features. You just get by with whatever works for you. But something that improves your life, you do learn. And so I find the poor people are very good learners. And you can make money, or you can only make money from the poor. No, you can make money with the poor. Because that's how there could be a properly aligned approach. That they make money, and your investment also makes money. Let me quickly cover on this uh, new energy project. Um, we have, uh, which we have tested a little bit, but we are also going ge- gearing up for a bigger test soon. Again, energy production started out in a decentralized way in Europe and helping democratic forces to emerge in Europe. Because now if you have a lot of little entrepreneurs producing one kilowatt, then one big businessman or a state that produces 500 megawatts, obviously it's concentrated. That hurts the potential democratic fabric of the country. So again, Bangladesh, centralization of electricity. Today, 67% of the electricity produced is for one central and metropolitan area. But here is the opportunity that's emerging. Before that, let me show you this picture taken from um, Scientific American um, by Emery Lovins, that electricity today in the large centralized power plants, here in the United States, the fuel that you burn, ultimately you use only about 10% at the other end, where it's actually utilized. So it's extremely wasteful. So so the most efficient plant, the combined cycle, actually throws away only 50% of the fuel heat out into the air. The more inefficient ones actually throws away 70%. 
But so at the end of the uh, many, many, you know, transition, you, you lose some in transmission of the electricity. And, the, and then it goes up, voltage up and down, whatever, and you eventually convert to the electricity, the energy you need. By the way, we don't, we don't consume electricity. We consume light, sound, heat, these sort of things. Electricity we produce only because they're easy to transfer and easy to manipulate, perhaps. Okay. But we, at the end of the day, the energy we use is very little. And as a result, electricity production in large power plants is the biggest culprit of greenhouse gases. Okay. So if, on the other hand, this is a decentralized energy production that is re-emerging in the Western countries. This one is called micro-CHP, which is CHP is combined heat and power. Because if you produce electricity in a, in a let's say, in a very nice, through a very nice engine that is quiet and doesn't need very much maintenance, produce it at your home because you have a gas supply or something, then the heat that comes out that you would otherwise throw away in a central plant, you could use it up to warm up your house. So with that, actually, the heat the energy utilization goes up to uh, 80%. And so that's a much better way of reducing carbon emission. And so this is beginning to uh, you know, gain traction in Europe and, uh, and Japan and perhaps in the United States. So this, I feel, also gives rise to a possibility that we could use this decentralized power production for small entrepreneurs in, 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 in developing countries. So here is the example, and we are using uh, the, 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 the engine to use the heat to dehydrate fruits and vegetables, which is a very, very healthy approach, um, and, um, because otherwise, um, you know, cooking food, for example, I learned this from our partner in um, dehydration, Whitney Varkedi, he was tell, teaching me that, the, that dehydration actually preserves enzymes. And when you're cooking, you might be destroying um, the enzymes, for instance. So dehydration is a very good thing that in, in a poor country, people can dehydrate herbs, medic medicinal plants, fruits and vegetables, and lift up their economies because you can produce a lot more valuable things than what you consume locally. Okay. So, and so because these countries are tropical countries, they don't need to warm up their houses. So, and the um, light, of course, could give rise to education and other activities in the evening. So I, I field tested this in two villages in Bangladesh in 2005, and we're gearing up for a larger test um, in, from this fall. And again, to summarize, both cell phones and micro-CHPs help poor people capitalize on the global economy because the global R&D are behind these kind of products. Okay. And that's a great deal of value. That's a great deal of aid that the rich countries can actually send to poor countries. And that can put them on the global economic highway. To <clears throat> so people in the West, I think, can make tools that, that can ignite the economic brush fire. And poor communities will be allowed to build up their own prosperity. I think that's the basic way I could summarize our, our, my activities here. And again, based on that philosophy, uh, we have recently established a center at MIT with a $50 million gift from the Legatum Global, Capital, Global Development to promote bottom-up entrepreneurial uh, development in poor countries. Um, and thank you very much. So, um, questions? 
a reminder, send them to uh, people in the yellow hats, and we'll pass them up to here. Okay. So, Iqbal, um, that seems to work wonderfully in um, Bangladesh. Are you finding that the same decentralization process with cell phones works in all the other developing countries of the world? Um, I, I think so, because, see, in Bangladesh was lucky to have excellent microcredit organizations, and that's why I planned through microcredit. Actually, see, the project was based on three observations. One is that the Moore's Law is making things cheaper and cheaper on the supply side. And the demand side, indeed, that connectivity is a very useful thing, and people become more productive and they can pay for it. The third element was the microcredit organization. Now, what's happening is that since then, another technology has emerged, namely prepaid cards, okay, which is allowing the first two premises are still true. That's why in Africa today, there are, I think there are six times as many cell phones than fixed phones in Africa because of those two first premises are still true, and they are getting decentralized. Yes? Good. What, what country would you say has sort of uh, been most impacted in the same model besides Bangladesh? Um, I think um, Nigeria is an example, Ghana, many African countries. By the way, one of the most interesting things is that the countries where even governments are not functioning, like Afghanistan, Iraq, and Somalia, and other places, um, cell phones are very, very useful, which is kind of interesting. Congo, okay? That's because when you don't have a system to protect you, you increasingly de depend on your friends and relatives. And then you even need the phone even more. Okay. Yeah. This is a, a question from Lex Ian. Is he or she here? Okay, there you go. Um, have cell phones in Bangladesh remained shared resources, or have they become status symbols? That is, have the nature of Bangladesh culture changed by the introduction of cell phones? If so, how? I th first of all, it's not a status symbol anymore because there are 40 million phones and it's a large country. Still, we have one, let's say, 150 million people. So one out of four people have a phone. So it's, um, it's um, not a status symbol anymore. But the culture has changed because I think people are connecting better. We've, we, you know, because we had very poor infrastructure in the country, we used to think we had a bigger country because it's hard to connect from one place to another. But I think now we realize that our country is actually pretty small, and people are connecting with each other, and they are getting more things done, this I can assure you. Yeah. Okay. Um, this is a question from Paul Lunda. Lunda. Lundal. Okay, there you go. Um, if connectivity is productivity, yes. as you suggest, are barriers of language and culture impeding progress worldwide? Sure, but again, there are connect, you know, productivity is not everything in life, but the point is, is indeed, if you cannot connect with languages, if you cannot speak, you know, language was probably one of the first technologies for, for connectivity, okay? But, uh, of course, but uh, at the same time, whenever we do connect, we, uh, we, uh, we, we produce, we, we can produce more because there's a mutual cooperation, okay? But then again, you know, we can always have, I'm not proposing that we eliminate all languages that have one, no, but it's, it's certainly each language has its own beauty, but we need to connect. That's a more generic concept than whether we need to have it through any other, I'm not arguing on what's the form of the connectivity. Yes. So I'm curious personally whether you've returned to that village where you were 
having that really bad, unproductive day, right. and um, looked at the changes in the village that have been brought about by the revolution that you sort of instigated. Are, are you, do you have any second thoughts about the changes that you would have seen there? No, I have seen... I actually, I've been to the village, okay? And I have seen many people carrying phones with them now. And indeed, I've seen um, the place, the lady who sells these services in that village, okay? And... Uh, the, what, what I can say is that there is, there is more connections between, you know, people actually, by the way, don't necessarily use the phones from village to village, but they're connected with the urban centers more so because they supply fruits and vegetables, chicken, into the towns, and the people are trading with the town. So that kind of activities has certainly changed a lot. In fact, I, let me give you one example. Do we have some time? Yes, okay. you, you have plenty of time. Uh, we, we, um, I met this doctor recently. Uh, in Dhaka, he said, uh, our phones are making him pretty rich. I said, how is, this? how is that? And he said, because he is, he, his uh, ancestors had some land in the rural areas that was completely unused and left uh, abandoned. So since the cell phones have come about, he can visit his village, and he created a fish farm. Okay? But because while he goes there every weekend, he's still connected to his other activities in the urban centers. So interesting thing is that it has brought investment into the village because this person remains connected while he's visit visiting this investment. Yeah. There's a question from um, John Markoff. Um, can the Grameen phones become internet devices and therefore extend the original wealth, wealth creation model? Definitely. Actually, one thing we have to remember that uh, although I, um, the, the Moore's Law I was talking about, and initially I thought computers could not be, um, you know, wouldn't be that useful because people are not literate, I mean, large illiteracy rate. Uh, but interestingly, of course, the phones are computers. And so increasingly, the, you know, we now have in Bangladesh one way to look at it is that we have 40 million computers that are connected. Okay. So, in fact, we already can provide on the, internet, on the cell phone network, you can connect your um, computers okay, and receive internet services. But on top of that, the cell phones themselves will, are, are able to soon be able to see, you know, have some of the internet services. Yes, of course. So one of the, in your diagram, one of the things that you were suggesting was that when you had this decentralized power, that that was a source of democracy. So this is a question from Chris Jefferies. If you raise your hand there. Um, what is the state of democracy in Bangladesh today, and how have cell phones changed that? Um, see, this is, this is a long-term this is a long-term foundation, so I think, I think the impact is, has to be seen in the long term. But uh, I can tell you that the overall connectivity of people increases their ability to organize themselves. Okay? But perhaps not documented in Bangladesh, but there are many countries in which cell phones' utility in the political arena okay, is well documented, in, including in the Philippines. Joseph Estrada, excuse me? Perhaps in the U.S., yes. Joseph Estrada in the Philippines, um, people send text messages to organize their protests. 
against a dictator in the Philippines. There are many others. The recent problems in, in Burma, okay, they were, they were partially, uh, you know, problem means they had demonstrations and all that. There, there's a generally people, you know, remember, again, this is why there's so much to learn from the history, the long-term observations of the first world. The, um, you know, what happened when writing became, printing became um, easily available 500 years ago, okay? People connected more. It was hard to put down the lid on people when they started to learn, they read their own Bible, etc. Okay? So technology is constantly shifting power and changing the political system. And so it sometimes it's not perceptible immediately, but it's certainly happening. Is there anything that you worry about the, the, the role of cell phones in this development cycle? Every, I think every technology could be abused, so therefore one could worry about it. But um, the, the benefits are much larger than the, than the worries. Okay. So for instance, I, I, when I was in the company, I left um, quite a few years ago now, we even, the police came and said some criminal is using the phone. Okay. But the criminality is not necessarily fault of the phone because uh, the criminal is using Bengali language. How can we turn off that language? Okay. Or he eats rice. Can we turn off rice? No. The criminals are empowered by whatever they have. We need to stop the crime. But the, the police is also empowered, just to make my second point, because the cell phones were able to locate people okay. and you know, identify the cell where the person might be using the phone. So usually, yes, there are some quote-unquote superficial observations about how these things might be hurting us. Okay? But um, at the end of the day, the overall gain is much bigger. This is a question from Paul. Would all the Pauls raise their hands? <laughs> it says Paul. What are some other areas of technologies that need microfinancial help? Or another way of saying that is, are there other technologies that could be spread by microfinance? Um, that's hard to tell, but there are a lot of things that organizations like Grameen Bank and BRAC and other um, microfinance organizations are promoting. For example, Grameen Bank has a large program to install solar panels in people's houses. Um, so that gives them some electricity. So there are quite a few. The point is to find an income-generating technology that could... Uh, actually, our Grameen phone might be its first one, okay? But the model is now established, and uh, anything that generates income could be financed um, through microloans or any loans. Yeah. Is, are there certain technologies that microfinance would not work with? Well, if you have um, microfinance has a lim you know, I think the, the point is how much benefit can you get out of it and that could be sold, does, and that could be sold in the community, that whether that corresponds to the capital cost. Okay. So if there is a viable business, let's say it's cost $20,000, which is much, much larger than these things. But if you have, let's say it's producing revenues of $1,000, then even if not microcredit, micro even a bank would lend it for, for that. So I think it depends not on the technology, but whether the benefits could be uh, um, what is that? Uh, monetized, okay? Monetized, and that 
correctly corresponds, okay, that can sustain the capital cost. That's really the real issue. But in this case, it did. And that's why it did pretty well. Yeah. From Matt Grimes. Want to raise your hand if you're still here? Okay. Um, is there any hope for applying such a populist empowering approach in countries hostile to both external influence and decentralization, such as North Korea and Myanmar? Yes, in general, of course, you need the government's uh, cooperation to start a service. Okay. For example, in Cuba recently, the government used uh, cell phones, allowed the use of cell phones. And it wasn't uh, allowed until very recently. I think the government people could use it, but the general population couldn't. But only two weeks ago, Raul Castro allowed this, two, three weeks ago. Okay. So, but the point is, is, yes, in general, you always need the uh, permission of the government. But the interesting thing is that, so we always think governments can allow certain technologies or not. But I think that's a limited way of looking at the issue. The a greater and more interesting way of looking at the issue is how technology changes the government. Okay? Because technology, and by the way, in any country, including here, forget about the government um, of any countries, in here, we always have an incumbent underestimates the potential of a new technology. So, for instance, the internet was underestimated by AT&T. That's why we had AOL, um, which maybe many of us have forgotten about. But AOL or Google, that something came about, right? So similarly, IBM uh, didn't, didn't notice the potential of, of uh, personal computers. So what I'm saying is, there's always the existing players may underestimate a new innovation. And that is an interesting entry point for the innovations, because people underestimate, so they let it enter. But then it emerges in a bigger way. Many people get benefit from it. And then it's too, uh, too large to stop. Okay. And by that time, this technology may have transformed that society. That has happened right here. And so it can happen in that way in poor countries. And this is why the internet in many countries, many poor countries, were not necessarily regulated. It came by surprise. And they had to regulate it afterwards because it was too fast. And they, by that time, things were already transformed to some extent. Yeah. So, so you're obviously an optimist about things. And I'm wondering if you were always an optimist as a little kid in Bangladesh or whether you became an optimist. Now, I am an optimist because it's, it's uh, you know, I think it's interesting to solve problems. So if, um, if we have problems, I think all our problems, we have one way or other solved through innovations. So uh, we may face other problems, then we have to think hard and come up with a solution. But if that means I'm an optimist, yes, I am. <laughs> uh, another question from... Michael Lynch. Okay. Um, what do you think of the one laptop per child? Do you think that this initiative is going to be useful towards the goal of decentralizing, empowering the poor? Sure. <laughs> but is the question is how do you distribute it? And um, I don't know. Nicholas um, has some plans. Uh, Nicholas Negroponte, who started this project. And... Uh, um, 
the, of course, it's uh, wonderful to have tools to kids and they can learn, their brains get activated, etc. But I, I'm uh, detecting not very much enthusiasm. Why don't you say what no, you really think? No, because I don't know. <laughs> no, my point is I don't know how far it has actually succeeded on the ground. Okay, so I I I think we need to think maybe how to actually distribute them. And um, Do, would you encourage the government of Bangladesh to purchase them? See, I'm generally trying to avoid the. I don't want to burden the government with that because if it does, then how does it distribute? There are many kids. How many computers can the government buy? If it has a few, if it buys a fewer number of computers mm -hmm. than the number of children, then how would it allocate them? Would it give it to its favorite bureaucrats? Mm -hmm. Okay. Would it give it to some favorite people? I see. I think it's much better to try through entrepreneurial means. So, what would your suggestion be for making or making sure that every kid in Bangladesh gets a computer as soon as possible. I think one idea would be, frankly, is to have a, 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 a you know, let's say an older kid, let's say a 16-year-old or 18-year-old, buy a computer and have little kids play with it, and he, she collect, he or she collects some money from the, from the parents of these children. Sure. Renting it out. Like yeah, rent renting out. it out or have a little playground where everybody plays with this. And then it establishes business. By the way, one of the interesting things, and these are established through actual data. So, for example, in, in India, which is a democratic state officially, the point is, it's, um, no, there's nothing wrong. My point is, the reason I'm saying this is that the state supports uh, the most prestigious schools, the Indian Institute of Technologies, for instance, which competes with MIT, for instance. But the, the interesting data is emerging that the slums, Parents of slums like to send their kids to private schools because the private schools provide better education. Why is this? Why are the slum dwellers trying to send kids to private schools and the state is supporting the best schools? What is the reason? The state must be taking care of some people, not others. People on which it depends. It takes care of them. And that's the proof that the, 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 the vast majorities of these countries perhaps do not have enough voice. And that's why empowerment is necessary. Yeah. This is a, a question I've gotten more than once. There's no name on it, but it's, it's just a tiny detail that some people sure. are perplexed by, which is how are the millions of cell phones charged in remote places without electricity? Through difficulty. <laughs> well, sometimes people have solar panels. Sometimes people take their, um, their phones to um, you know, neighboring towns and, and also charge car batteries. They bring the car batteries that serves them for a while. And one interesting thing I noticed through um, trying to do the electricity project is that um, we picked a village that didn't have any electricity or there was no prospect to get electricity there for a while. And uh, one surprising thing was that village had 10 televisions. Okay, how? People take the trouble to take car batteries to a nearby town, charge it and bring it and have little entertainment. So the point is people are trying to get ahead as far as they could go. It's the public system that has failed, that has not provided the necessary services. But people are, are doing all sorts of difficult things to get it done. Yeah.
A question from Ben Tem Temchine. Okay. Um, one impediment many development economists have noted is how risk-averse poor people are. When failure is catastrophic, you get conservative. Um, are they being proven wrong by the Grameen no. phone? No, in fact, it, it is true. It's, it's a human nature. Even in England that I was talking about in medieval time, sometimes new innovations took long time to take hold, simply because if the farmers, I'm talking about 10th century in England, okay, if they produce too much, the prices would fall, they would suffer. If they produce too little, they would suffer because there would be starvation. Okay? So people were very risk-averse and adopting new technology. It took quite a while to adopt new innovations in, in those situations. Okay? So yeah, so, but the solution is to increase their income because then they can take additional risks. What is your long-term vision for the Lakentum Center? Will you be developing centers in emerging markets, or is this going to be just based in MIT? Yeah, we, we just started in uh, September, and uh, we, are, we provide fellowships to MIT students who can think about new possibilities of organic bottom-up uh, enterprise in developing countries, using innovations, using their entrepreneurial skills, and um, so we will, uh, we, we hope to develop collaborations with uh, universities or other institutions in developing countries so that we could, um, this could be a means of uh, recruiting good students, good entrepreneurial talent, or uh, it could be a means of our students learning from those institutes the context, the ground realities of the problems. And so, yes. Uh, we would be in, um, starting um, some kind of collaboration with other universities, for instance, or other uh, research centers in, in, in developing countries. And what would you say the, the biggest challenge that you have for the center? What, what is the thing that's keeping you up at night? Um, well, we are new, so we don't mm. know exactly uh, what is the how do we identify the real entrepreneurial talent, for instance? Okay, because there is really no set formula for that. Okay? And we, uh, we are working hard to find the criteria to identify the students who will be good fellows. And this, this year we, elect, we selected 12 of them and, uh, and will ramp up. Um, and of course, we think we are doing right things to encourage them to go back to developing countries, but there is always that risk that they might come here and be lured away in a good job in the United States. However, because we are, they are meant to be entrepreneurs, they, might, they can make more money, potentially, even in going back to their countries. So it may not be the old-fashioned problem of uh, somebody came to be a bureaucrat and then he simply joins um, an investment bank in this country. So um, hopefully we'll do fine. You talked about the misguided notion of the large development money and age, mm -hmm. aid agencies funding authority rather than the decentralized right. um, empowerment. Um, obviously, if, if there is money to be used to help developing countries develop, do you have sort of a large-scale model of how you think that money should be used? Is it, I mean, besides giving the Legatum Center more money. Is there, is there an, uh, a mechanism that you see um, that could absorb the, the, the sort of 
good intention to money of the world to develop the developing countries? Well, I was trying to show that, uh, that uh, giving money to the wrong side is, um, is exacerbating the problem. Okay? So if you cannot find the right side, then just don't give money. Okay? But if you do find the right side, then you find what, what works there. But uh, Grameen Phone is a very good example of a l very large-scale project. Okay? By now, $2 billion have been invested. But there are many, many possibilities out there okay, where you could fund an entrepreneur. Um, and, and then, if it is a good idea and he makes money, it becomes large scale on its own. It gets replicated by other people. So you don't have to worry. Just find the right thing to do. Do you have practical suggestions about places people should direct their own giving? I think if they, they, there is always, um, you know, if you want to give something to somebody, then um, try to identify a real entrepreneur through organizations that you might be able to be in touch with. Um, you know, there are always uh, small NGOs and other organizations in poor countries, and that's one way to reach out to um, individuals. I think, by the way, rich countries can always help poor countries, okay? But it, the, the real help is much better if it's simply people to people. Yeah. So uh, Bill Gibson, the science fiction writer, famously said that the, uh, universe, uh, that the future has already arrived, it's just unevenly distributed. Are there places in the developing countries, even in the slums of Bangladesh, where the future has arrived and they have something to teach us about what will be coming? Well, um, innovations, frankly, can come from anywhere, okay? And if we think about our global warming problem here, you know, which is a global problem, but um, it's, a, it's a problem, we have to admit, is by and large created by the rich countries because of the... And, of course, now India and China and others are joining. But the so-called resource-poor countries... Okay, are likely to innovate uh, in ways that minimizes the use of energy, for instance. Okay, because we had plenty of energy, we have been wasteful. Okay, so those technologies or those innovations are likely to help us all. Yeah. I think unless there's more questions, that um, we really appreciate your coming here and, and giving us the long-term perspective on development. And thank, thank you. you. Thank Give you a hand much. to Iqbal. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.